We are still go with Apollo 11. You're listening to Apollo 11 Legacies. The following podcast captures an Apollo 11 legacy panel discussion recorded in Huntsville, Alabama, as part of the Apollo 11 50th anniversary celebration. The eagle has landed. The panels feature people with a personal connection to the Apollo project. Apollo 11 Legacies is produced through a partnership with Intuitive Technology and Research Corporation and WHNT News 19. Three, two, one. The best thing about that was we had not had really good fresh fruit in Europe for a long time before we came. And every day when we went to the yeah, eat, there were apples and bananas and oranges. I mean, oranges were always a big thing. So it was just an absolute good time from that standpoint. Despite the decades that have passed, Volker Roth's memories are still vivid. When he talks about arriving in New York and then traveling by train to El Paso, Texas, obviously the train's dining car left its mark. Volker's father was Ludwig Roth, a German rocket scientist who surrendered to American troops at the end of World War II. Ludwig and the other German scientists and engineers became part of Operation Paperclip. They were brought to Fort Bliss in El Paso, and they worked at the nearby White Sands Proving Ground. They were busy with the early development of America's missile programs. Their families had stayed behind in Germany, but in 1946 and 47, they too moved to Fort Bliss. And then in 1950, the missile workers and their families again moved, this time to Huntsville and Redstone Arsenal. Ludwig Roth was one of those scientists, and he would stay with the Army Missile Program until he left to go into private industry in 1956. Volker was one of Ludwig's sons, and eventually he attended the University of Southern California and would also work as a contractor on various NASA programs, including Apollo. His brother Axel went to Auburn, and he too would work at Marshall. Eventually, he became the center's associate director. A note here on Volker and Axel. Volker kept the German pronunciation of their name, which is Roth. Uh, despite what looks like Roth to Americans, Axel chose to go by Roth. Here's Volker Roth talking about his experiences at the end of the war and the family's long journey. This was recorded as part of a panel discussion by several children of the original German rocket scientist. The site was the Huntsville Public Library. I stuck with my dad's pronunciation, yeah. And uh, it made it a lot harder, but my brother was a much nicer person than I was. Uh, I'm always interested that you guys came in 47, yet you were a little bit older than I was. And I came in 46, and I'm younger. I'm not sure how they got that all swirled around. Yeah. We, uh, we arrived in, uh, in New York in about the 14th or 15th of December of 1946. At any rate, uh, like everybody else, we, we ended up uh, yeah, bypassing Ellis Island, went uh, straight over to the train depot, and we got uh, you know, put on the train to El Paso. And the nice thing was, as, as you had mentioned, you had the, the car where we were in, and then we had the dining car next to it. And so that was our domain for three days. And the best thing about that was we had not had really good fresh fruit in Europe for a long time before we came. And every day when we went to the yeah, eat, there were apples and bananas and oranges. I mean, oranges were always a big thing. So it was just an absolute good time from that standpoint. And like them, uh, you know, we uh, got the announcement that we were going to cross the Mississippi River, and of course we're all really interested in seeing that. 
without doubt the biggest river we've ever seen. There are no rivers of that size in Europe. And then later on that day, they said, we're now going to be entering Texas. Well, you had uh, three young boys who had you know, read comic books about uh, uh, Indians and uh, the bad guys and the good guys in the wild, wild west. And I'm going to tell you, we were you know, glued to the window watching for the cowboys and Indians outside the window in Texas. And if you've ever gone from the border of Texas to Dallas, you know, it doesn't even look like anything in the movies from that standpoint, okay? So that was a grave disappointment. Of course, by the time we got to Dallas, it was getting dark, and so we never saw any, any uh, Cowboys and Indians on, on the way across. But we did arrive the next morning, and my dad had gotten a cab, and he met us at the train depot, and it was you know, great to be all back together again. And then, yeah, this uh, was supposed to be talking about that beautiful time of learning yeah, how uh, to live in Fort Bliss. And it was quite a remarkable change, as you've you know, heard from everyone. Uh, our situation was a little bit different because we had uh, four boys already, my mother, and her mother had passed away early from breast cancer, and she had raised her sister. And so her sister was like another child, so the you know, five children in the century. She, at that time, was 17 years old when we arrived in Fort Bliss. So what they did is they decided the easiest thing to do was to give us an entire barrack. <laughs> and the barrack we got was uh, you know, a portion of the hospital. You came into the barrack, and it had a whole bunch of rooms right and left. And one of them was a kitchen. There was a laundry. There were a couple of bathrooms. There were a bunch of bedrooms and so on. And then you walked through the next doorway, and lo and behold, here was the ward. And that thing had to be at least 30 feet wide and 50 feet long, and there wasn't a thing in it except linoleum. Okay? And so that was kind of an awakening. And on the other end was a very large room with the entire you know, width, and it was for isolation cases and so on that they used to have in the hospital. So that became our living room. So that's what we lived in when we were there, basically. And it was... Yeah, better than a lot of places we'd been in the meantime. Yeah, uh, Uber talks about uh, you know the, the bombing you know, raids in uh, Pentamunda. Turns out I was born probably in the same hospital Uva was uh, up there in Swinamunda. And uh, when the big raid came, I was a year old. Yeah, I don't really remember anything about it except I have a brother, uh, Axel, who wrote some memoirs, and the big thing he wrote about was the bombing raid and you know, how that affected us. There were two families in the building. We had a two-story building. It was a family upstairs and our family downstairs. And when the raid came, we all went to the cellar. And the raid went on for 90 minutes of solid bombing. Most of the time, you couldn't even hear airplane engines. It was just one bomb after another you know, going, up, going off. And when it was over, there was an eerie silence. And then people started coming out, and uh, we, we heard soldiers, or my family heard soldiers outside, and they ended up having to dig us out of the cellar because the house was basically destroyed. So I like that from the fact that, but for the grace of God, I wouldn't be here telling you this story at this point, you know. You're listening to Volker Roth, the son of German rocket scientist Ludwig Roth. He was one of the men involved in Operation Paperclip, which brought the Germans to the U.S. at the end of World War II. We'll have more with Volker after this short break. 
We return now to the memories of Volker Roth, the son of German rocket scientist Ludwig Roth, who came to the U.S. at the end of World War II. But at any rate, um, so so the the big barrack was really kind of a nice thing. They, they were pretty rudimentary; had a lot of leaks and so on. If it got cold, it was <laughs> kind of frigid, and it was always hot. It seemed like, and so you had to deal with that. But the biggest problem I remember having is uh, I was you know young at that time. I was four years old when I arrived, and eight when I left in 1950 and uh, went to Huntsville. But uh, I wasn't real big on cockroaches. <laughs> and I learned very quickly that you made sure that your bladder was totally empty before you went to bed, because if you had to get up in the middle of the night, it was going to be traumatic. Because you, know? <laughs> you turned the light switch on, the entire floor would leave. <laughs> so it was kind of gross. You know? We finally ended up getting that under control, but it was, it was a rude awakening. And uh, you, know, you mentioned the airfield close by. Well, in, in Europe, you know, I learned to be very attuned to high-altitude bombers and the noise they would make when they started dropping bombs. And I was the biggest chicken. I was always in the cellar first. <laughs> the way I'd hear that, and I was gone. Okay? Well, it was different in, uh, in El Paso from the standpoint that we had that airport next door. And when the wind changed, you ended up flying directly over the barracks into the, the uh, landing field. And they would come over the, the barracks very, very low a lot of times. My mother swears that one of them hit the top of our barrack once. <laughs> I'm not sure I believe that. But to you know, expand on that a little bit, you know, I had a brother who for, for Christmas that year had gotten a bow and arrow. And we still on this Indian kick. You know. And when the planes would come across that low, he decided he could, he could probably hit one of them. <laughs> so when the planes came over, here he is out in the yard with his bow and arrow. Now, he doesn't know if he ever hit one, but he swears that the arrows went higher than the airplane. So, at any rate, those you know, good times for the, the, uh, the kids. Uh, that area, obviously, is all desert. And as a result, there are a lot of dust, dust storms. Well, if you have a dust storm and you're in the annex, you're going to have dust. I mean, you're going to have a lot of dust, okay? And we had a very big one not long after we moved into this barrack. And, you know, the next day, you know, you're obviously trying to figure out how to get all the dust out. Well, we found a very unique way of doing that. We had this youngest brother who was about a year and a half old at that time, and he fit right on a blanket well. <laughs> Guess how we cleaned the ward, yeah? Drag him around the ward, make big piles of dust right in front of the door, and then shove it out the door. Yeah? So you take a you know, chore, and you made it into something that was a lot of fun. He enjoyed it, and we enjoyed the heck out of it at the same time. Um, yeah, there were a lot of things that we had to learn when we came to this country. There were a lot of things that were absolutely wonderful, and you know, for me, that continues today. But uh, back then, you know, in Europe, you really didn't have any vending machines that, that I ever remember or that my brothers ever remembered. And here they had Coca-Cola. And it came in a vending machine, and for a nickel, you could get a bottle of Coke. But nobody had a nickel, and, and we didn't rob the, the guys. <laughs> 
my, my oldest brother and his friend, uh, Carlines Ball, you know, uh, got a nickel from Carlines' mother. And they waited. We weren't supposed to be in the areas where the, the, uh, the scientists were doing their work. But it was you know, kind of all very close. And that's where the vending machine was. And so they waited until they had an opening, and they went in there, and they put their nickel in, they opened the door, they got their Coke out, and then they ran. Yeah. Cool. Guess what? They forgot to open it. <laughs> you ever try to open one of those old Coke bottles without a can opener? Two of them, you know, with rocks and sticks and everything, kept trying to open that thing. They, they finally got it bent up enough that they could drink the Coke out of it, but the lid never came off the bottle. <laughs> So that was just kind of a, a rude awakening. Another thing that happened that was uh, fairly interesting, my brother Dieter was kind of, he was, he was the wild child in the family, basically. We'd been told that, you know, you need to not go down the long halls between the buildings, especially in the areas where the workers were, you know, because you were disruptive. Well, he had gotten this tricycle, and he'd ride the tricycle around in the ward. Well, that got to be kind of boring after a while, and he decided he could go faster if he went out there in those halls. So he gets his tricycle, and he goes out in the halls, and they have this, the swinging doors yeah, in, in, uh, every, between every barrack, basically. And he'd go through the swinging doors, and he got all the way down to the end, and it worked really well, and he was having a great time. He started coming back, and all of a sudden, a couple of the swinging doors in front of him opened up, and here were two MPs with rifles. <laughs> now, he'd grown up in, in Germany during the war, and he'd been told by, you know, by, by my mother that you know, you, when you're around soldiers with guns, you, know, you put your head down, behave yourself totally, and you don't mess with it. Well, these guys, I think they were trying to be nice to him. They were trying to talk to him. Well, he was scared to death. He, he thought, I'm in trouble. They're going to shoot me. Okay? <laughs> So he's trying to figure out how to get away, and one of the guys reached in his pocket and got out some gum, took out a stick of gum and tried to hand it to him. He said, something being given to me by a stranger in a silver package. <laughs> now they're trying to poison me. <laughs> so he, he managed to take off and got away. But uh, you know, when you look back at it, it was a traumatic experience for him, but you know, it was the, the MPs were really just trying to communicate with him, and he couldn't communicate back. You know? So we learned, and we learned very quickly what, what all was going on. Uh, the most fun activities were probably the swimming pool. Yeah. Summertime, if we yeah, could, we went to the swimming pool. Everybody, all the young people did. And uh, yeah, I had learned to swim a little bit in Europe, but I yeah, really learned to swim well there. And my older brothers, yeah, they were regular swimmers already, but my youngest brother had gotten to be three years old by this time, and he was just absolutely fearless. And sometimes I wonder if, it, if his head was all there, but he just wasn't afraid of anything, basically. I would not go off the high board in that swimming pool. I mean, there's just no way you're gonna get me up there in the first place. But with him, we ended up having to put a uh, life vest on him because we couldn't control where he was going half the time. He didn't know how to swim, and he'd just jump in the water wherever he wanted to. Okay? Well, the next thing you know, we weren't paying enough attention, and who's standing up on top of the high board but this three-year-old? And he's standing right on the tip of the board, and then he just 
<laughs> falls over. He did a perfect flip and landed on his feet and comes up laughing like hell. <laughs> and I thought, wow, for the rest of the time we went to the pool, we couldn't stop him from doing it. He thought that was just the greatest thing in the world, and he did it rather well. <laughs> so a lot of things turned out to be fun. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, you know, going out in the desert and you know, we would play hide and seek. We would you know, have many wars. We would chase lizards. <laughs> I remember my brother one time, he and his friend ran into a uh, Gila monster. They tried to shoot him with a BB gun and <laughs> he swore the BBs just bounced off of him. <laughs> now, if you ever see the Gila monster, they've got really a thick skin. You're not gonna hurt him with a BB gun. You know? But we never did see any snakes out there, I don't know. I'm sure there were you know, snakes, but we just never you know, crossed them. And you know, the, the business with going you know, uh, out of the fence was always an issue. There were two gates, but they were pretty far apart from the center area. And so most of the kids you know, did what you guys did, dug holes under the fence. Going over didn't work out very well, but going under was just easy. But uh, you know, my friend and I got stuck out. Well, we didn't get stuck. A dust storm came up real quick, and all we could do was remember the fence is kind of in this direction. And we walked until we ran into the fence, but you couldn't see ten feet in front of you. I mean, we were just basically blind until we got to the fence, and then you, know, you can find your way once you get there. Um, the we also, at that time, learned a lot of the American uh, uh, sports. Baseball, you know, basketball, uh, those kind of things just weren't played in Europe. And uh, a number of years back here in Huntsville, to show you what a small world this is, I, uh, I was the president of the Madison County Schools Foundation, and I was dealing with uh, the Huntsville City School you know, Board. And I ran into a guy there whose name was Topper Bernie, and Topper is sitting oh. right back there. Stand up, Topper. Oh. <laughs> and, it, and it turns out that he said, hey, I know your brother. And I said, where do you know my brother from? He said, Fort Bliss. <laughs> and I said, how in the world is that? And uh, he said, well, my dad, it turns out Topper's dad was the... Uh, the historian for the army who had been sent to Fort Bliss to you know, capture some of the history that was in the making there. And the thing that was the big call for Topper was he had every manner of baseball, bat, gloves, basketball, <laughs> all the sports stuff you could ever imagine. And he, he taught those German kids how to play those games at that time. And then I run into him right here in Huntsville, Alabama. It's just an absolutely amazing world, isn't it? <laughs> You've been listening to the recollections of Volker Rote, a young child when his father Ludwig became part of Operation Paperclip. That was at the end of World War II. We'll return to our final segment with Volker in just a moment. Here's more now with Volker Roth, the son of German rocket scientist Ludwig Roth. Volker remembering his family's journey from Germany to Texas and then eventually to Huntsville and Redstone Arsenal. Let's see, we've talked a little bit about school. 
and you know the way uh, school worked with the you know lower and upper and all that and how how we came into it. I came into the system down there in the first grade because I was still too young, you know, to go to school in, in Europe. But you know, the guys that started in the older grades, they ended up being held back initially until they got more proficient at the language. But the army, uh, you know, did a pretty good thing. They decided that all these kids, you know, had a lot of energy. They, they, they were going to be, you know, tough to manage during the summer. And so what they did is they brought in a teacher to teach us English during the summer. And they, they taught some of the other subjects, but we would go to this class. Well, my brother remembered the teacher's name. He's, he's always been really good, you know, with remembering names. Her name was Miss Outlaw. <laughs> you figure out why I remembered, right? At any rate, she was apparently a really good teacher. He really liked her. And when she wasn't teaching, she was telling him, at the end of the summer, I'm going to get married and I'm going to get rid of that damn name. <laughs> she was just happy as a pig in the mud about that. Um, Let's see, the other things uh, I'd, I'd mentioned, you know, when, when uh, my older brother, for example, started in school, they still used slate and a stylus to write you know, their, their work on. And then they eventually graduated to paper, but by that time it was the middle of the war and paper was a hard-to-find commodity. So they, they had a mindset on how they dealt with paper. When he started going to school, they would have you know, lesson plans, and they would have problems, they would have to write the the tests and write the answers. And he would hand in his sheet of paper and everything would be, the entire answers to the question would be on a space about that big. And the teacher came and said, you know, we have more paper. I'd like you to write a little larger. <laughs> so again, something that, uh, you know, we had to learn here that, uh, you know, was a bit different. Um, the other thing that was kind of interesting to me when I uh, researched doing this, you know, when initially Heidi asked me to do it, I thought, God, I'm covering from four years old to eight years old. This is going to be a really short talk. <laughs> but then I talked to my brother Dieter, and after having him on the phone for a half an hour, he finally admitted that he knew a couple of things he could tell me. And my brother Axel did a great job of writing some memoirs. And he, he captured a lot of really good things. But it was really interesting to note that uh, you know, everyone always asks how were we accepted in school in El Paso when we had to go to public school. Axel's response to that was it was a wonderful transition, basically. The teachers were great. The students were great. Everything was just really good. And after uh, you know, thinking about that for a while, I, th I think what happened is it was so close to after the war that the Army discussed with the teaching you know, staff that they were going to have these children, they were going to be have potential problems between young children who'd lost their fathers in the war and then have you know, German students next to them. And they made it all clear to everyone that this was supposed to be a good you know, interface. And as a result, it was. Okay, But then three years went by before my next brother ended up going to school. And when I asked him about that, he said, ah, oh, you know, it, really, it kind of sucked. Yeah, we were on the receiving end of a lot of stuff. He said it even got to the point where I would uh, ask the teacher 10 minutes before school was out if I could go to the restroom, <laughs> and then I'd take off and start walking back to Fort Bliss. 
because I could avoid a lot of the confrontations I had to run into. So I thought that was kind of an interesting yeah, difference. And then my memory when I started going to school was different again. It, uh, there was nothing to do with you know, us being Germans. Of course, at that point, I'd already learned a lot of English, and so I could communicate well. And my only problem was that I was, at that time, you know, my two brothers had grown very quickly. They were young, elder, obviously, but I was still the runt of the litter at that time. <laughs> kind of best way to put it, I was short, I was, I was not very heavy, and boy, I was an easy target for anybody that needed someone to whack on. So I was pretty fast, but I didn't get away all the time. And for me, the bus was actually a great thing. Had an MP on it, and the guy didn't let anything, anything happen to any of his kids on the bus. Had this great big long seat, you know, seat in the back you could lay on. By the time you got home, your nose would stop bleeding. Your mother wouldn't be upset with you. <laughs> so I thought it was cool. But two, three very different you know, experiences, but none of them really bad. You know, Dieters was probably the worst that he walked, but he, you know, he was kind of a loner anyway. He probably loved that walk back to El Paso, or Fort Bliss anyway. Um, and some of the folks have talked about camping trips. Camping trips were absolutely the greatest. First time we took a camping trip, uh, there were a number of people that went together and we were shadowed by some MPs. And uh, we finally, they only did it once. You know, they finally decided, you know, this is crazy. I mean, we're sitting around here watching these people having a good time. And nobody's bothering them, and they're not trying to get away or anything. And so it didn't happen again. But we did get shadowed the one time. And what my dad had done is he had gotten a, uh, uh, a, a used army tent that slept eight people. And, of course, I had this huge, long, you know, two-by-four in the middle holding the center of the tent up, and he, had, he cut it in, two, in three pieces and uh, built a contraption to put it all back together again so we could put the tent up. And we would take off every opportunity, you know, we could and go camping at all the places you had on your map, you know. We've, we've been to all of them, you know, with that tent. And everything fit in the trunk of the car. We, uh, we ended up having a 1940 Chrysler, but, you know, I mean, you didn't need station wagons back then. They had these huge trunks already. <laughs> already yeah. So that worked out really well. Um, we also uh, you know, took a trip up to White Sands, and fortunately for me, uh, that was during a time when they actually had one of the V2 launches, and I got to see my first real launch you know, that I could, uh, uh, I, I could appreciate you know, from White Sands just laying in the sand not too far away. And that impressed the heck out of me. You know. Fortunately for, for that, it kind of sent me down a career path that I really enjoyed, and it was really good to me. And as a result, uh, I did a lot of work in the space business, and I loved every minute of it. Yeah. You've been listening to the recollections of Volker Roth. His father Ludwig was a German rocket scientist in World War II who surrendered to American soldiers and became part of Operation Paperclip. Volker's reminiscence recorded as part of a panel discussion at the Huntsville Public Library. It featured several children of the Paperclip scientists. We invite you to listen to our other podcasts on this subject and more as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon mission. 
Go to the Apollo 11 tab at the top of our website, whnt.com. You'll also find other interesting items on North Alabama's contribution to America's manned spaceflight history. Apollo 11 Legacies is produced in partnership with Intuitive Research and Technology. Content made possible with the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's Legacy Panel Lecture Series. Music provided by Megatracks.